The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Amen. We sang earlier, glory, glory, we have no other king. Jesus is Lord of all. And because Jesus is Lord of all, I want to welcome everyone in the name of Jesus. Because he is Lord of all, each and every one of you are welcome here today. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we give you thanks. Our life depends on it. So give us ears to hear and hearts to follow. And Lord, give me the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So every year I teach a class at Oklahoma Christian. The class is called Capstone, Christ and His World. And it's kind of a Christian worldview class where we ask the question, what does it mean to live as a Christian live, believe, and act as a Christian in a modern, postmodern world. And so at, at a certain point of the semester, in fact, it was this past week, I give them an assignment. I give them a case study. And it's a case study actually that comes out of my own experience in Uganda. It's a case study about how they go about making a really, really important decision. So here's how the case study goes. In Uganda, as in many different African countries. They, Uganda, many of the tribes are traditionally polygamists. Now polygamy can arise for a number of reasons, none of which has anything, at least overtly, to do with having uh, more sex with more people. These can include a leveret marriage, in other words, taking a wife of a deceased brother. It may, it may be because there's infertility in the first marriage it may mean that you take a second wife when the first marriage has seemingly come to an end only to have the first wife return. Because in Uganda, once you have married someone, traditionally, that person, that, that woman, that young woman, belongs to her father, then she belongs to her husband, and if she goes back, oftentimes the, the, the father will say, no, go back to your husband. Or maybe they take a second wife because one wife, the first wife, is aging and physically cannot handle all the duties required, like cutting firewood and cooking and digging in the garden. So in some contexts in Africa, more than half of the men over the age of 40 have taken a second or third wife. In some rare cases, they've taken even more. I've known men that have had more than five wives. I've heard stories about their grandparents that had 40 wives. Lord have mercy. <laughs> and these marriages are considered very real marriages. So the question I have for them as polygamists come to Christ, how should a missionary respond? If a man comes and says, hey, I want to become a Christian, how would you respond? So I make them write about this, and I say, you need to take, take in consideration what you know about the culture, what I've just told you, which obviously is very little, right? 
what you know about how the church has always thought about marriage, or at least what you understand the church has thought about marriage, and what scripture might say about it. So they all write their own individual case studies, but you don't make, always make decisions like this. You do make them individually, but decisions like this are never made just by one person. You always make these in communities, right? You always come to decide these things in the communities that you're a part of. So when they come to class, I divide them up into groups. They've already thought about it individually. Now they have to become a team, and now they have to work together to say, what are we as a team going to say? Which is a much more difficult task, isn't it? Especially if you end up with differences of opinion. So how do you decide? So it's interesting to watch them struggle through, first, their own authority. Like, what authority do I have to say these things? Like, do I have authority? Do I not? They struggle with Scripture. Well, what does this mean? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? They struggle with their own experience in the world. They struggle with other views. So right, let me give you an example. Some will say, well, what we need to do is say, hey, you need to... Divorce all the other wives, but only stay with the first wife. And somebody say, well, wait a minute. What about divorce is wrong? Are you getting the picture? How complicated it is? Like, what do you do? And so they struggle with each other. They struggle with scripture. They struggle with other views. They struggle to understand what is God up to here. And there's many more questions after that. But the real question is this, how does, how does the church make decisions? Really, really important decisions that aren't always, always clear. In our text today, Acts 15, as we've been studying the spirit-powered church, you come, we come, to what's called the first church council. Now, I know we don't do church councils, but in church history, there's been many church councils, and this is the first major church council where a very young church is trying to figure out what is it, what's God up to in the world and how do we follow. They have to make a decision. And so, in Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, this was read earlier, but it says this, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done. Do you remember we, we uh, studied a few weeks back, at, we read about the church in Antioch, and they were first called Christians there. And what God had done, that there were Gentile believers that came. Well, eventually, what happens is that some from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, 
the mother church at the time. They come and say, and these are Christians. These aren't necessarily, these aren't just Jews. These are Christians. And they say, hey, unless you're circumcised, circumcised Gentiles, you cannot be saved. Whereas Paul and Barnabas are there like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And it says that a dispute broke out between them, a debate about this question. So much so that they ended up, the church ended up sending Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. Here's something I want you to be aware of. Conflict. Conflict is always a part of any decision that needs to be made. When we hear the word conflict at church, and boy, unfortunately, it seems like sometimes that's where we find a lot of conflict. But when we hear conflict, we're like, oh. And sometimes when there's constant conflict happening, that's unhealthy. But here's also what's healthy. When you go to a church and there's no conflict, I had a therapist one time, a Christian therapist, say, yeah, um, he described a, a particular church. He goes, yeah, this, this church, I don't know if they're that healthy because it's like sitting in a room where you have the mom and you have the dad and you have all the, the children there and the therapist, and I ask them, so what do you guys argue about? What do you fight about? And the dad says, we never argue or fight. And that's when he says, I put in my notes, dysfunctional. Because even in your family, you know there's conflict. Now, it doesn't have to be always drama all the time. Sometimes it is, and that's dysfunctional, right? But any healthy family has some conflict. That's just natural, I think, about being in relationship. And so, up to this point in Luke's gospel, there's been a lot of external conflict to the church. So the church has experienced the stoning of Stephen, persecution, right? There's a lot of external conflict. But besides the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which happens a little bit earlier, this is the first time Luke talks about conflict in the church, which is a bit odd for Luke considering he spends a lot of time talking about peace. And so it's ironic that he doesn't hide this at all. In fact, several times in chapter 15, he goes on and it's, there's a dispute. There's a disagreement. They debated. He does not try to sweep it under the rug. He could have gone about it and just say, here's what the church decided, but he goes about it in a way that says, yeah, there's conflict. There's a sharp dispute. And because we know how this story turns out, considering that I'm almost everybody, I think everybody in this room is a Gentile, we know how this story turns out, and because we know that, we're tempted to write off this group that is coming and, and kind of causing the dispute. We're tempted to think, yeah, 
these are just a bunch of legalists. But it's, it's really this conflict that happens between reading of Scripture and then the church's experience in the world. I want to show you. So in chapter 15, verse 5, says this. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now this group that's from the Pharisees, which also has a bad ring in our ears, but if we just listen to that, we think, oh yeah, they're Pharisees, they're legalists, of course they're wrong. But I want you to stop for a second. They're actually making an argument from Scripture. This is God's people's experience up to this point. This is a respectable argument. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 17, it says this, beginning of verse 3. And then Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make the nations uh, of you. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Right? The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as foreigners, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, we know this. This is God's promise to Abraham. This is the promise that the rest of the story is built on. And then he goes on and says this. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Here it is. Right? All of these promises are contingent on keeping this covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought or bought with money uh, from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Do you see why we need to take them seriously? They're arguing from Scripture. Later on, Later on in the book of Exodus, it says any foreigner or any Gentile or those that have been proselytized into Judaism that in order to take the Passover meal, they must be circumcised. The circumcision law comes up again in Leviticus. So when you hear these guys who come in and say, wait a minute, in order to be God's people, they need to be circumcised, they are arguing from Scripture. 
And what they're doing is, what we all do, is that we read scripture and it interprets our reality for us. It interprets the world. So they're reading scripture and they're saying, yes, this interprets the world. And when we don't follow what God does, what God says, things don't go well for us. We know the story of Israel. They're arguing from scripture. But when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, it says this, verse six. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, uh, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they began to listen to Barnabas and to Paul telling about signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Peter, after they make an argument about what scripture says, and they debate it for a long time, Peter stands up and he says, Here's my experience. Here's my experience of God and his spirit in the world. And then they begin telling stories. Paul begins telling stories. And Barnabas begins telling stories. And it seems that in this process that these telling of these stories are central. You have scripture which is being read, and then people sharing their stories, and they seem to be central to how they're making this decision, this whole process. And what we find is that as this begins developing, this process, much of our life, many times, Scripture interprets our experience. But what we find in this story is that the experience of Peter and the experience of Paul and the experience of Barnabas and the experience of others interprets Scripture. Have you ever had that happen to you? Let me give you an example. So Scripture interpreting our experience would be like this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now you know this in your head, right? But then when you actually give and you go, oh, Scripture's right! It named it for me. It was right all along. Or, but sometimes our experience interprets scripture. Have you ever had an experience and then you read scripture and it's been there all along and you've never ever seen it that way? I think I've told this story before. In fact, I may have told this just a few weeks ago. But my teammate, Sarah Barton, when she was living in Uganda, she was doing women's Bible studies and they were talking about who are your heroes in the Bible? So she was going around asking each 
different woman sitting around the mango tree, underneath the mango tree. And one woman says this, raises her hand and says, Sarah asks, well, who's, who's your hero of faith in the Bible? She raises her hand and she says, Bathsheba. To which my teammate Sarah Barton in her head went, oh, no, Bathsheba. She's the bad girl of the Bible. She's the reason David fell. She's the, I mean, but being a good missionary, she didn't say, no, that's wrong. She said, well, wait a minute. Why Bathsheba? And this woman said, because she didn't get to choose who she married. She didn't get to choose um, who she slept with. She didn't get to choose how many co-wives she had, how many wives her husband. I live in a marriage where my husband has many wives. And I don't get a choice about that. But Bathsheba shows me what it means to be faithful in even when I don't get to choose all those things. And Sarah went, oh my goodness. I've never read that story that way. Do you see what I mean by your experience interprets scripture? But this not only happens to us, it happens to Peter. Do you remember when Peter gets up and tells his story, he's up telling the story about Cornelius You guys know what happened when God invited the Gentiles in. And he's telling the story of Cornelius, although he doesn't say this. But do you remember that story? Like he has the dream, right? Don't don't say the things that are uh, clean or unclean. And so he's sent to Cornelius' house. And he walks to Cornelius' house and he goes in. And you have to read read it this way because I think this is how how it should be read. Is that Cornelius, Peter walks into Cornelius' house And he says, you know it's against the custom and against the law for me to be in your presence, so what do you want? Like, he's not happy about being there. He's like, I had this dream. I don't know what it means. I know what Scripture says. I know what the law says. I'm not supposed to be here. You know I'm not supposed to be here, so what do you want? And then Cornelius starts telling his story. He starts telling his story about what God has done in his life. And by the end of that time, Peter says this, I now realize. When scripture says God doesn't show favoritism, I now understand that scripture. So even when Peter is telling his story, it's how his experience helps him go, I now understand. The text goes on. After Peter speaks, and Paul speaks, and Barnabas, after they narrate their stories, after they've debated scripture, and now the stories are heard, it says in verse 13, when they finished, James, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, he spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God has intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. 
that the rest of humankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who, who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So, so then he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, from blood, from the law of Moses. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Even James listens to these stories. And by the end, notice what he says. He doesn't say, how you see? These stories, they're in agreement with Scripture. He actually moves the other direction. And he says this, the words of the prophets are in agreement with these stories. Do you see the difference? It's not that the scripture has interpreted that experience, it's that these experiences has helped us understand what scripture is saying to us. This is the practice of discernment. So in verse 22, it says this, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some from among them, some men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, and with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and, and Sicilia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from uh, from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of, for the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Here's what discernment looks like. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible, actually. Did you notice in the letter, it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Don't you wish sometimes when we're making decisions, we could say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's possible. We tend to think about church and decision-making as a democracy. But decision-making in the church is not about democracy, it's about discernment, and there's a difference. Here's the difference. Democracy seeks the will of the majority. It seeks the votes of the majority of the people. 
Discernment seeks the will of God and the mind of Christ through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Democracy says this. We, we listen to one another because they have a right to their own opinion. Now, that doesn't work very well because oftentimes what happens is because we think we have a right to our opinion, often our opinions are very obnoxious. Just read Facebook, right? But in discernment, there's a different spirit at work. We don't listen to one another because you have a right to an opinion. We listen to one another because we believe that if you are in this room and you call yourself a Christian, that you have the Holy Spirit. That's why we listen to you. And we listen because we never know when the Spirit's going to speak. And we listen even to the minority voices because you never know when God's going to raise up a prophet. Now, that doesn't mean that all experiences and all voices are equal. This is what discernment is. We listen and we discern the spirits. All voices or all experiences are not equal. I'll be the first one to tell you that just because, it, just because it is my experience doesn't mean I fully understood my own experience. Have you ever had that happen to you? Just because you have an experience that's yours doesn't mean you fully understand your experience. Sometimes we need others to help us discern how we're experiencing the world. And finally, decisions are made in faith and humility. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, they're writing this letter and they're saying, here's where we've landed right now. We've made this decision and there's this sense of humility to say, there's, here's where we've landed right now. Here's where we've discerned God work of the world, and here's where we're landing. And so they say, we shouldn't bother you about circumcision, but here's what you need to know. It's good of you to stay away from meat sacrifice to idols and from sexual immorality. Now what's interesting about that is, and this is why they say, here's where we've landed for now. Here's where it seems good to us. And the discernment keeps going on because by the time Paul writes another letter, he says, he gets later down the road and he says, what's meat sacrifice to idols? Right? That's not really something we've discerned. That's not really a big thing once you move along. And so, you know this to be true. If you've grown up in churches of Christ, if you've grown up in churches of Christ and are now here at this church, what we've understood about Scripture and who we are, look what's on stage. Come on, Church of Christ people. We're going to have a good acapella day here coming up soon. It's part of a discernment process. 
And I'm not saying we discern all ways to change, right? That's not the point. The point is, is that God is the one moving and working. And we're to discern. Think about churches in the 1950s. They're segregated. You had white churches and black churches. Now they're still fairly segregated. But think about the discernment that went on there. Think about the changes that have taken place. Discernment, I would argue, is the primary act of faith. Discernment, first of all, is this. Seeking, discernment is faith seeking understanding. It's believing and trusting in, try, in order to understand, especially when the actions of God go beyond the previous ways that we thought God should act. Have you ever had that experience? Discernment is, number two, the way the faith of the church is articulated. I want you to notice that what begins with the story of two people expands step by step to a debate and a discussion of the church as a whole, and in the process, the church discovers new dimensions of what we believe Because by the end, the story of two or three becomes the story of this is what we believe. See that? In other words, we need to listen to each other's stories. And number three, discernment is the way to say yes to the work of God in the world. The church, we, we struggle to let God be God. Amen. We struggle to let God be God. The church in Acts struggled to let God be God. It's part of what it means to be human, I think. But it's part of the struggle of faith. And I've said this many times, we talked about this the whole month of February, that the church does not have a mission, but God's mission has a church. Thank you. And his mission and work in the world often goes before the church's ability to understand it or perceive it. God has been working in the world before you knew it or before you fully understood what he was doing. And so this is why we must discern. If it is God's mission and he is the primary actor in the world, then the most fundamental practice of mission that the church should engage is the the practice of discernment. Do you hear what I'm saying? If God is the primary actor in his spirit, the most missional practice we could do is discernment. God, what are you doing? And how can we get in on it? And this is what the church is doing in Acts 15. Constantly discerning where God's spirit is moving so that we can recognize it and join in. Discernment. Discerning God's spirit in the world. This is what it means to be a spirit-powered church. Let's stand and sing.